2 Kings 2 is where we'll be today. 2 Kings 2. And the title of the message is, Where is the God of Elijah? So we'll go before the Lord, the word of prayer. And Heavenly Father, I just ask you, Lord, that come down in our presence. You're here already and ask you'll speak to our hearts today of the fact that you do not change, Lord, and that you are the God through the centuries, through the ages, that is always the same, always powerful, always willing to deliver your people, and that you will turn the curse into a, a moment of grace, a time of grace forever. Amen. And I ask you'll reveal those truths to our heart today in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll start reading. We'll read 2 Kings 2. Beginning in verse 1, it says, And it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah unto heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, Well, as the Lord lives, and as thy soul lives, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said unto him, Know ye not that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he says, Yeah, I know it. Hold your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he said, As the Lord lives and as thy soul lives, I will not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha and said to him, Don't you know the Lord's going to take thy master from thy head today? And he answered, Yeah, I know it. Hold your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Tarry, I pray thee here, for the Lord has sent me to Jordan. And he said, As the Lord liveth and as my soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And the two went on. And fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off, and they too stood by Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. And it came to pass when they were going over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, well, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, that is a hard thing you're asking. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so unto you. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came up to pass as they still went on and talked that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. And he took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. And when the sons of the prophets which were to view at Jericho saw him, they said, Well, the spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. And they said unto him, Behold now, there be with thy servants fifty strong men. Let them go, we pray thee, and seek thy master. Lest peradventure the spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. And when they urged him until he was ashamed, he said, All right, go ahead, go, send. And they sent therefore fifty men, and they sought three days, but found him not. And when they came again to him, for he tarried at Jericho, he said unto them, Did I not say unto you, Go not? 
And the men of the city said unto Elisha, Behold, I pray thee, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord seeth, but the water is not and the ground barren. And he said, Bring me a new cruise and put salt therein. And they brought it to him. And he went forth unto the spring of the waters and cast a salt in there and said, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. So the waters were healed unto this day, according to the saying of Elisha, which he spake. And he went up from thence unto Bethel. And as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city and mocked him and said unto him, Go up, thou bald head, go up, thou bald head. And he turned back and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood and tear forty and two children of them. And he went from thence to Mount Carmel and from thence he returned to Samaria. A long story there, huh? A lot going on. If you don't believe in miracles, that probably wouldn't be your best chapter in the Bible, right? Because there's a lot of miracles taking place. So Elijah is told by God that he is going to be taken up to heaven. And everybody, it seems, knows it. So Elijah knows it. Elisha knows it. The sons of the prophets know it. And they keep reminding Elisha at Bethel and at Jericho, they keep asking him the same question. Don't you know the Lord's going to take your master up from you today, from your head? And Elisha seems just a little bit irritated. He's like, yeah, I know. Would you hold your peace or be quiet or be silent, be still? That's what he's saying. He's like, yeah, I know it. Would you guys just chill out? Because they keep asking him the same question. He keeps getting it. So Elijah's going to take Elijah on a little journey before the big event happens, before he's taken up. And they start at Gilgal. They go to Bethel and Jericho. And they finally arrive at the Jordan River. And everywhere they go, when they're at Bethel, and they're at Gilgal, when they're at Jericho, each time Elijah says the same thing to Elisha. Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, or please stay here is what he's saying. Just please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. Or he says, the Lord has sent me to Jericho. Or the Lord has sent me to Jordan. Just stay here. Every time he keeps saying the same thing. And every time Elisha's answer is the same. As the Lord lives and as thy soul lives, I will not leave thee, is what he tells him. So they hadn't invented it yet, but he's sticking to him. Elisha is sticking to Elijah like gorilla glue. There, there is no part in the two of them. And what's going on with that part of our text? It's a test. So in 1 Kings 19, we don't need to turn there, but God had told Elijah, he says, you are going to anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and you shall anoint him as prophet in your place. And so it says he goes and he finds Elisha. And what is he doing? He's behind a plow of one pair of oxen. There's 11 pairs, it says, in front of him. That's quite a situation in that field. And that's what he's doing. It never says a word. Elijah walks up to him, he says, and he just cast his mantle over on him. Doesn't say a word. Cast his mantle. And it wasn't much of a mantle. What was his garment? It was a rough, camel-haired robe. How'd you like to have that tossed on top of you, right? But Elisha understood the symbolism behind what he was doing. Because back then, when a great teacher died, he would give his robe to his most promising disciple. So he's given his authority, his anointing, his power. And that's what he's doing to Elisha. Elijah's saying, hey, you will be the one to take over from me. You're going to have my authority, my anointing, and my power. That's what all that symbolized. And Elisha, 
followed him. He followed the call from that day forward. It said he stayed with Elijah and ministered to him, ministered to his physical needs. It said he washed his hands, poured water, just his servant that was with him every day. He's not going to leave him. And he's especially what we're reading here is he is not going to leave him at the end. So he must have realized something. He must have realized there is a blessing coming to me if I will just stay with this man, stay with my master. And I think he's thinking this. You remember that mantle that you threw on top of me at my parents' house? It might have had a little bit of an odor, master, but I'm not leaving you until you hand that to me. No, sir, I am sticking with you until I have your blessing not going away. You know what I think his parents taught him when he was a little boy? I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. That's what he would have been singing, except he would have had Elijah in there. Or I think maybe he probably knew the account of Ruth and Naomi. And what happened in that account? Naomi keeps pressing Ruth, telling her, go back to your parents, go back to your gods. All you're heading to is trouble when you head with me. When you go with me and, you know, Ruth finally tells her, she says, entreat me not. Quit saying that to me is what she was saying to leave you or to return from following after you. Ruth said this, where you go, I will go where you lodge. I will lodge your people shall be my people and your God, my God, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me. So Ruth knew something. She says, the blessing is not with the gods of Moab and my people. It's with the people of Israel. And more importantly, it's with the God of Israel. And that's the determination we have here with Elisha. And we have to ask ourselves in this, are we willing to trust and follow the Lord Jesus Christ no matter where he leads us? Because when he spoke to the multitudes, he had a lot of disciples around him at one point. And you read John 6, and he said some things that were hard for them to understand and hard for them to receive. And it says this, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. All of them left. I'd be like, everybody in here just leaves. I don't like the word. And there's just 12 people left. That was all that was left there because he turns to the 12 and he asks them, are you going to go away too? Are you going to be like them? And Peter gives the only answer that a saved person could give. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we believe and are sure that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Have you gotten to that place in here? If the Lord asked you, will you also go away? Will you also go away? Are you going to leave me and trust somebody else or something else? That's what the Lord would ask us. What would your answer be? Be like Peter's? Lord, I've tried the world. I've tried the world and its ways, and there is nothing there for me to turn to. You and you alone, I am sure that you are the Christ the son of the living God. Where else can I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. I think that's one of my most favorite parts of scripture because that's the way it should be for a redeemed, saved Christian. Where else is there to go? I've been part of the world. It got me nowhere, nothing but trouble. But you, Lord, 
Where else can I turn? You have the words of eternal life. So it seems like it's a disjointed story, but it's not. Because the three places they visit in this chapter are very important. Because they take a route. So they go from Bethel to Jericho to the Jordan. They go that way. And then you'll see they go back. Elisha goes by himself back the same way covers the same places and there's a reason for that so we'll talk about that here in a moment but they leave Gilgal and they come to Bethel first and so Bethel wouldn't mean anything to you you need to understand what is significant about Bethel Bethel the word Bethel the name means house of God and early on Abraham he went there the house of God built an altar and it says he called on God and when he went down into Egypt that's where he went back to it's a special place. Jacob, when he was fleeing from Esau and going up to Laban's, he stops at Bethel. And Bethel is where he has a revelation, where the ladder appears, and the Lord is at the top of the ladder. And he's the one that names it Bethel, house of God. That's a holy place. When he came back to Israel, God says, I want you to go back to Bethel. I'll meet you again there. And you know what happens the second time Jacob goes to Bethel? God changes his name to Israel. And that was a place of orthodox worship. I mean, they rightly worshiped the Lord at Bethel up until the point of Jeroboam. Jeroboam, the first king of the divided kingdom of the northern tribes, totally corrupt king. And what he did is he made it a totally apostate area, set up a golden calf. I'm thinking when you read that, of all things, Jeroboam, if you're going to set up a false, why would you do what cursed the people back when Moses was up on that mountain? They made a golden calf. Yet he sets two of them up, one in the south in Bethel and one up in Dan. It had false priests, false worship, false everything. God would send prophets to curse what they were doing. But that is what Bethel is now at the time of Elisha and Elijah. It's an apostate place. Jezebel had made it a den of Balaam worship was going on there. The prophet Hosea, he says, no, I'm not going to call you Bethel anymore. He says, I'm going to call you Beth-Avon. Beth-Avon, Bethel means house of God. Beth-Avon means house of wickedness. Well, that's quite an indictment on that place. And Elisha is asked by Elijah, you want to stay here? You want to tarry here? Because I'm moving on to Jericho. And here's one thing I heard somebody say, and I think it's true, that Elisha realized, I don't have what it takes to deal with this wickedness that is here in Bethel. This place is beyond me, and I'm not staying here. I'm staying with you, Elijah, because I need your power and your anointing. That's what I need. I'm not ready for this place yet. And so Elijah at this point in the story is a type of Christ because when he ascends, what happens? His spirit comes down on Elisha, doesn't it, when he's taken up in that chariot through his mantle. And it's the same thing with the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells his disciples, he says, you're not ready yet. You're not ready to go out and deal with the world. You need to stay here until I ascend. And when I ascend to my father, I will send back my spirit and then you wait, you tarry. When you're endued with that power of the Spirit, then you'll be able to deal with the world. And that's the way it is. And that is the thing we need to realize is that we need the power of the Holy Spirit to deal with the evil in this generation. Without being Spirit-filled and without continually being filled with the Spirit, 
not a one-time past experience. We do not have what it takes to deal with this generation here, not in any sense of the word. So the next place they go from Bethel, he goes to Jericho. Here again, Jericho, the name means fragrant, and it was known as the city of palms and rose gardens. But now when they get there, we read it is a place of death. Jericho is now under a curse. The water there, we'll see it was killing the people and the livestock. It was causing miscarriages everywhere. And Elisha, again, he says, I got no desire to stay here at this place at Jericho right now. I'm sticking with you, Elijah. So what do they do? They move on to the Jordan River. Look in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2 there. It says, And Elisha said unto him, Terry, I pray thee here, for the Lord has sent me to Jordan. And he said, As the Lord lives and as thy soul lives, he says, I will not leave thee. And the two went on, and 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off, and they too are there standing by the Jordan River. And here at the Jordan River, a miracle takes place. Elijah takes off his robe, folds it in half, and it says he smites the Jordan River, and the waters part right in front of the two of them. And it says they walked over on dry land. They get over to the other side. And Elijah asked Elisha, he says, what is it you want me to do for you? And you think about it. He could have asked for a lot of things, couldn't he? He could have asked for money or, as has been said, I know what I would have asked for. He knows he's getting taken up to heaven and he's going to depart. I'd have been like, can I ride with you? Right? I love my family. I'm telling you, that's one ride I wouldn't bypass. He didn't ask for that, did he? (laughs) He didn't ask to tag along with him because he knew he had a work to do. Elijah had anointed him. He says, I'm anointing you to take my place. It's not his time to go yet. And he knows that. He's like Paul. When Paul said this, Paul says, for I'm in a straight between two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But he says, nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. So Elisha is going to be anointed to take over for Elijah. And he asked him, he says, what is it that you want? And he says, I'll tell you what I want. I want a double portion of your spirit. It doesn't mean twice as much. It means he wants the firstborn. That's what the rights of the firstborn was. They got a double portion. He says, I want more than any of the other prophets. I'm going to be leading this group. And that's what he's asking for. He's got a work to do. And he says, hey, that's a hard thing you're asking, though, because I'm not the one that gives that. But nevertheless, he says, if you see me when I'm taken up for you, it shall be so unto you. And if not, it shall not be so. And so they keep walking. And as they're walking, it says, I don't know how this would have happened. But as they're walking, it says this chariot of fire and horses of fire. They come and separate the two of them. And next thing you know, Elijah, he's standing there watching. He's taken up. Can you imagine that happening? This really happened. He sees him taken up into heaven that way. And he cries out, my father, my father. The chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he's gone. It says he's gone from his sight. He'd walk with this man for many years. When he's saying that the chariots of Israel, that means he was the strength, the defender of Israel at that time against Baalism, against all the false prophets, all the false religions. He's gone. We're not going to see him again until Mark chapter 9 and the transfiguration. And so what happens now, Elisha, you think about that. He is on his own. 
He's been walking with Elijah. Elijah has been the one directing him, telling him what to do, and he is now no longer there. But what does he do? He walks over and picks up that mantle of Elijah that had fallen. And then he begins to retrace the steps of his journey, except now he's a new man. He's a new man. The spirit of the living God now rests upon Elisha. And he's got that mantle in his hands. He's looking at the river. The river's come back now. And he's looking at that river just like it was when his master took that mantle and smoked those waters and watched him part. And so what does he do? He takes that mantle and does the same thing. The Hebrew actually says he did it twice. He did it once. And then he cries out, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he says that the second time, those waters part. Just like they did for Elijah. And who's watching him up in the mountains in the distance? The sons of the prophet. And they realize something has happened here. That the spirit of Elijah now rests on the prophet Elisha. The power of God is on him. We have the Jordan River supernaturally parting twice in one day. Think about that. First time Elisha and Elijah crossed that thing on dry land together. It comes back together. Elisha does it, and then he crosses back over by himself. So listen, what does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with us? It is an entertaining story to read. I like to see Hollywood get hold of that one. I'm surprised they haven't already. Maybe they have, but they would butcher it like everything else. But what are we told? It says in the New Testament, Romans 15, that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, doesn't it say that? That we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So what is that account telling us? What is it saying to us? And this is my first point, and that is that God's power never changes. That's the first thing we'll see here, because the same God that parted the Red Sea for Moses and the Jordan for Joshua, when did that happen? 1400 B.C. The same God that did that then is parting the Jordan River for Elijah and Elisha in 850 B.C., 600 years later. And what does that tell us? Time does not diminish God's power. That is what we need to see from that. 600 years doesn't change the power of God one iota. Now, 600 years have changed my power because 50 is changing it. 30 is changing mine. I'm not what I was at 20 by any stretch of the imagination. We know that. God's not that way. His power, His arm to strengthen, to heal, to deliver, to save, to provide. His arm is an atrophine with age. It's strong. The God of the Bronze Age is the same God of the Iron Age. That's what you had back with Moses, the Bronze Age, in case you're wondering. And the Iron Age is what we're into with Elisha. Things have changed. But I would say the God of the Facebook, iPhone, and Twitter Age is still the same as then. So here's the point. People and their needs, their basic needs do not change. All this technology and all, we still need water, don't we? People get sick and need to be healed. People have emotional problems. There's all the problems are the same. They're just dressed up better. And then the point of this whole thing that we want to see is cultures change, time changes, but our God does not change in the power of his spirit. The living God never changes from one age to the next. Malachi 3, it says, I am the Lord. I change 
not. And so what do we see? We've been studying Mark, all the things that our Lord Jesus Christ did. He has not changed one iota from the days that he walked the earth then. That's why we're reading what we're reading. He really hasn't. Otherwise, when it says Jesus Christ the same yesterday, what's the middle one? Today, I mean, and forever. Well, that isn't true. Let's just scratch that one out of the Bible. He is the same, is he not? Believe me, he is. He's still walking the earth. The miracles he performed then, he did through the apostles after him. And it continued. Miracles have never ceased from the church. They really haven't. There's always been miracles and healings. God has always moved. So that's the way it is. Leaders and movements may change. Just like here with Elijah and Elisha. Leadership change. A movement changes. But God never changes. So he parts the Jordan going one way. Elisha's gone and up and away. Does that mean God went with him? Uh Uh-uh. He stayed here. And he's here with us. So he doesn't leave the church when the leaders leave. Because the promise of John 14 isn't to leaders, is it? You know what the promise of John 14 is to? Believers. Are we all believers here? Well, we qualify. Because this is what it says. Jesus, this is the words of the Lord Jesus. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me. Doesn't say who's got a TV ministry or a big name or whatever, does it? Doesn't say that. He that believes on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do because... I go to my Father. Why does he add that on? Because I go to my Father. What is supposed to be sent? What is sent? When he goes to the Father, he says, I'm going there. It's better for you that I go because I will send my Spirit. That is the key, isn't it? That's where all the power is. It's not inherent in any of us. It's the Spirit. The Holy Spirit. (laughs) The power of the Holy Spirit. So John G. Lake, Smith Wigglesworth, Andrew Murray, all the great ministries you can name. They are no longer with us, are they? We can read their books and be like, oh man, I wish I lived in their day. We don't need to live in their day. Because the Spirit of God has not left the church. So read 1 Corinthians 12. It says this, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of operations, but it is the same God who works all in all. And here's what he says. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man for the benefit of all. So if we're Spirit-filled, and I know most of us, I just don't think we honestly believe it. If you're Spirit-filled, been filled with the Holy Spirit, you speak in tongues, you have a gift of some sort that is supernatural. Not a talent you have. I'm able to talk to people really well. That's my gift. No, it's not. Now, God may use that, but it's a supernatural gift that comes from the Spirit of God. And so he takes people that are ordinary and he makes them extraordinary. That's what he did with Gideon. Oh, fearful, doubting Gideon. I'm a nobody. My family's a nobody. And yet God raises him up. That's why we went through all that. He takes the weak, the foolish, and despised. And that's who his church consists of. And that's what God uses. Because I'm saying it's still here. Latent, maybe, but it's still here. That power is here. The power resides within us through the Holy Spirit because 1 Corinthians 12 goes on to say that God has set some in the church, workers of miracles, gifts of healing, tongues and interpretation, has set 
in the church. That means they're appointed to be here. They don't leave over time, right? Yeah, that's, right. <laughs> that's the point. But here's the other point. And that is there's a price to be paid, though, isn't there? Because Paul goes on to say, but covet earnestly the best gifts. Covet. It's the word for lust, like a man would lust after a woman in the wrong way, except this way he's using it in a good sense. Lust, desire, the gifts for the good of the body. That's what he says over in 1 Corinthians 14. But there, like I said, is a price because Elisha received the spirit of Elijah, but he paid a price. I'm not leaving you. I'll be with you. I'll serve you. I'm not leaving you. You're not getting rid of me. I'm staying in your presence. And so the 120, oh man, look what they experienced on the day of Pentecost. Tongues of fire, a sound of a mighty rushing wind coming in there. But those people, they weren't out at the bowling alley when that happened. No, they weren't on Twitter tweeting. What were they doing? 120 in one place, praying in one accord, desiring what he had promised. He'd even given them the promise. They didn't just rest on that. We're pressing in till this happens. Ten days or more. I believe they're fasting, praying like we've talked about. And they paid a price, stayed in God's presence. And I'm saying we can see the same thing. But the question becomes then, are we willing to pay the price for it to happen? Much prayer. So here's what I think the Lord wants to encourage us today, that the God of Elijah is our God. Where is the God of Elijah? He's here. (laughs) He really is. He's our God. And we can experience his supernatural power just like the prophet did. We just need to get it out from it's easy to preach, it's easy to talk about, it's easy to amen, it's easy to read books on. All that's easy, right? But pressing in to experience it, pressing in where I'm not letting go until I experience it, that's a whole other ballgame, isn't it? It is. So if you would, put something there and turn back to James 5. I want to show you we can experience what he experienced. Beginning in verse 13, James 5, 13. And James writes there, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? What should you do? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. And if he's committed sins, you can't even make that an excuse. They shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And then he goes on to talk about Elijah. He says, Elijah was a man subject to like passions. He's just like us. Not a special person, but it says he prayed how? Earnestly. I don't know what your version says, but he's praying earnestly. He's pressing in. That's how he experienced what he did, that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. So when he's saying the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, you're thinking, is that me? And he's like, yeah, that's you, man or woman. We should be righteous people. See, and you press in like that, we think, I'm not like him. He's saying, no, you are like him. It's just we need to yield to the Spirit of God. David wrote this in the Psalms. He says, oh God, 
You have taught me from my youth, and I still declare your wondrous deeds. And even when I am old and gray, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation and your power to all who are to come. Now, that's quite a prayer. Oh, God, you have taught me from my youth, David said. Look at what all he experienced as he grew up. God gave him deliverance when he's tending those sheep. That was supernatural. The lion and the bear coming to attack him takes it right on through his life. Supernatural. He says, I've experienced all that. I know it. I'm not wondering about it. But I got this next generation coming. They're questioning things. They're not quite sure. He said, look, don't let me get old and great headed until I have made known, shown your strength to, he says, this generation. Well, we always have a this generation that needs to see that. Third generation, that's when Christianity generally dies out. Read the book of Judges. The third generation, they knew not the Lord. They knew not the God of Joshua. That generation, that generation of Joshua that was faithful and saw God's faithfulness, they died out and the next generation didn't pick it up. And David said, I don't want that to happen. He says, don't forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation and your power to all who are to come, he said. And that should be our prayer. So let's go back to 2 Kings 2. We'll look at the second thing that I want to look at here. And that is that God loves to pour his grace where there has been a curse. So we're saying he's retracing his journey. So here's where he experiences. An anointing comes on him. And the first thing he does when God's spirit is on him, he parts the river of the Jordan. Then he comes back to Jericho. He didn't want to stay there the first time, but he's back in Jericho now. Retracing his journey. And look at this, verses 18 and 19. It says, when they came again to him, the sons of the prophets, after they'd been looking for Elijah and didn't find him, where was he? It says, he tarried at Jericho. And he said unto them, did I not say unto you, go not? In verse 19, and the men of the city said unto Elisha, behold, I pray thee, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees. But he says, the water is not, they said, and the ground is barren. Barren. There's a deadness there. It's a result of a curse that was placed on it by Joshua. So when it says the ground is barren, the ground, it means the land. It's saying that land, this area of Jericho is barren. And the word is better translated miscarriaged. There's miscarriages, which a miscarriage will cause barrenness. But that's what it's saying. Look at verse 21, death. And he went forth into the spring of the waters, cast a salt in there and said, Thus saith the Lord God, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from thence any more what? Death or barrenness, miscarriages, he's saying, in this land. So you know what happened? When the walls came tumbling down back in Joshua 6, when they marched around Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down, and that place was flattened out, here's what Joshua said. Cursed be the man before the Lord that rises up and builds this city, Jericho. He said, he shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. And what he's saying is the man that has the nerve to rebuild this city is going to lose his firstborn, it says, and his youngest son. They're going to die in the process. And if you'll just turn back just a little bit to 1 Kings 16, you can see that. 1 Kings 16 verses 33 and 34, we'll look at that. 
So this is how Jericho that he's at came to be. It had fallen down and somebody had the nerve to rebuild it. First Kings 16, it says this in verse 33, And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. And in his day did Hiel the Bethelite build Jericho. He laid the foundation thereof in Abiram, his firstborn. In other words, it cost him his firstborn to get the foundation done. He died. And he set up the gates thereof in his youngest son, Zechub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. And so in open defiance of God's word, he built that city again and brought a curse upon his own family and brought a curse upon that city. The water is cursed there. It should be a pleasant place. They're saying this is a pleasant place, but the water here is making this place unpleasant. It's producing death. And the point of all this is Elisha comes back and we're seeing that God, where there is a curse and where there is death, loves to pour his grace out on those situations. If only people will turn back to him, which these people did. They turned to the prophet, didn't they? They came to him. Hey, can you help us out here? Can you, by the grace of God, help us out? And God doesn't turn anybody away with that. Elisha says, yeah, just bring me a new bowl with salt in it. He goes to the spring where the fountainhead of that spring is and casts that salt into the water. And it says that the water was healed by the word of the Lord that came from Elisha. And now these waters that once produced death are now producing life. So let me ask you, do you think he had enough salt in that bowl to purify those waters? I don't think so. It's symbolic of the cleansing and healing power of the Word of God when it's empowered by the Spirit of God, which Elisha now had on him. And so that new bowl represents what? The new prophet, just a vessel, just a simple clay vessel, clay pot, but it's clean. That is the principle that God changes Curseville into Graceburg. That's what he did there through a clean, yielded vessel speaking the pure word by the power of the Spirit. That's how he does. That's how he works. And that's what we're seeing here. And Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 4 7, he says, But we have this treasure. Paul says, I've got this treasure. He's talking about God's word. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. That's all I am, he says. I'm an earthen vessel. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. He's saying the power is not in me. I'm I'm just a, a bag of dirt, 69 cents worth of dirt if you melt me down, he's saying. But that word in me, the spirit that's in me, that's what's producing the life. And everyone will know that power is coming from God. That's surpassing great power. Nothing special about Paul. But when it's energized by the spirit and the word is in our heart, things happen. Grace comes in. And so maybe you're here today struggling, feeling like you're under God's curse. A lot of people feel that way at times. Or you've committed some sin that's brought you back under God's curse and things aren't right. That is exactly what happened to Jericho. And what I'm saying is that doesn't mean despite what the devil's telling you or you're telling yourself that God's grace can't reverse it all because that's what we're seeing here. That is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because we were all under the curse at one time, weren't we? I mean, that goes clear back to the garden. Everybody's cursed in the garden, aren't they? 
But that isn't the end of it, is it? <laughs> so we know this verse well. Galatians 3, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He took the curse we deserve. That's why any curse is lifted. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ dying for us in our place on the cross. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And the Spirit is that clean, clear, pure water that gives life through faith, it says. And that's the principle we have throughout the Bible. Hannah was barren, just like the women of Jericho. And she had to think, I am under a curse. And she prayed this. It says she prayed in bitterness of soul and wept sore. And then what happened? God's grace came into her life. When you turn to the Lord like that, things aren't the way they should be. You feel like you're under a curse. And you seek the Lord like the men of Jericho did Elisha. And like she did there in the temple. And Eli sees her praying. And here's what he tells her. Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. And at that moment, her womb received grace. The curse was lifted through that word. Just like in Jericho, through the word of the prophet. And thereafter, she got pregnant, had Samuel, and named him. I asked him of the Lord. And that's God's process, reversing curses. Maybe you got a financial curse. Malachi 3.9, he says, because you haven't been giving me my due, he says, you're cursed with a curse. For you have robbed me, even the whole nation. God pronounced a curse on Israel. But the point is, was it irreversible? wasn't irreversible, was it? Because he goes on to say, bring you all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in my house and prove me, God says. Now herewith saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes and he shall not destroy the fruit of your ground, neither shall your vine Cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. God says, just put me first in your tithes, in your offerings, in your life. Prove me and see if the curse won't be lifted. I'll give you grace. Or a person could be backslidden. We've had that happen many people at different times and all of us in many different ways, some greater than others, fail the Lord. Fell into sin that you knew was outright rebellion. Just like the guy that rebuilt those walls in Jericho, rebuilt the city. And I would say, if you feel that way, let me take you by the arm and we'll walk over here and we'll look at Jericho. Jericho, this city that is cursed. Nothing's growing. Nothing's going right. And look at what God did through the word of the prophet. Changed it all. Change those bitter waters, those bitter waters of death and do a blessing that are sweet today because that's the word of Elisha, isn't it? Back over in 2 Kings, look what he says there in verse 24. And he went forth unto the spring of waters and cast the salt in there and said, thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not from thence be any more death or barren land. And do you know what? The waters in Jericho are sweet to this day. So when you're under a curse and you go to the Lord and he reverses that, not going to worry about I'm going to fall back under that curse again. No, he says it's going to be that way from henceforth. No more death. No more barrenness. That's what he is. It's a river of life that's come. <laughs> 
And that's what the Spirit of God does in our lives, doesn't it? So Joel 1, the prophet's looking at the land. Isn't he in Joel 1 at the beginning? And he's saying this land has been wasted. It's been cursed. That's what he says. That which the palmer worm has left, the locust has eaten. That which the locust has left, the canker worm has eaten. That which the canker worm has left, the caterpillar has eaten. He's looking across the land. The field is wasted. Just picture that. No greenery when there should be. Everything's stripped bare. The field is wasted. The land mourns. The corn is wasted. The new wine is dried up. The oil languishes. The vine is dried up. The fig tree languishes. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree, the apple tree, even all the trees of the field. He says they're withered. No joy. You're just looking at a desolate place. You ever seen those pictures of these cities that just got mass bombed during the Second World War? They look gray and ashen and desolate. No life there. And he's saying, he's looking in the field, he said, Israel, this is you at this time. You're withered. The joy is gone. He says, because joy is withered away from the sons of men. But here is the good news. And the story doesn't end with Joel 1, does it? Because what are we experiencing today or should be? Joel 2, amen? So turn over to Joel 2, if you would. And here's what God promises. Joel 2, beginning in verse 12, it says this, Therefore also now, now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. Why? We're seeing this with Elisha. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. He'll turn from the curse. And who knows if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. And look down in verses 18 and 19. When they do that, when the people turn back to the Lord, he says, Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I'll send you corn and wine and oil, and you shall be satisfied therewith, and I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. And look in verses 21 to 27, he says, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree bears her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. And the floors shall be full of wheat, and the fats shall overflow with wine and oil, and I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar, the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you, and you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God. He hath dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed, and you shall know then that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else and my people shall never be ashamed. That's the promise. Amen. That's what we're seeing going on here with Elisha, with what he's doing. He's saying God wants to take a cursed situation. He's saying if you'll just turn to him, whoever, and for all of us to some degree, turn to him. He says, I will bless you in a way you can't imagine. All of the things that's been taken from you, God says, I will restore. 
I'll make your bitter waters pleasant, and they'll never bring death again. That's what we'll experience when the Spirit of God is alive and well in the church. That's what happens. Amen. So if we go back to 2 Kings 2, and the last thing we want to look at here, and that is, he goes to the next town. He goes back to Bethel. Bad Bethel. Not a good place. And when you read this account on the surface, the last three verses, 23, 24, and 25, where he calls those she-bears on those kids, it appears on the surface like Elisha is just a little bit touchy about his bald head. <laughs> and those of us with bald heads, you can be a little touchy about that at times. Can't take a little bit of teasing from some kids, right? Calls down a curse on them, calls these bears out of the woods. So, I mean, I'll tell you what, the bears, I would not want to come in contact with them. When I was out west years back when I was 20 years old, I was way up high hiking by myself, and I'd see these big logs where bears had just been. I could tell they had just turned them over. They're looking for grubs underneath, but I never saw one of them. And I'm like, I don't want to see any of them. It made me a little bit nervous. So something about coming face to face with the bear, nothing you want to face. But can you imagine two angry bears coming charging out of a woods towards these children? And actually, they weren't children like what we would think. So this story is not what it appears to be on the surface. For one thing, Elisha is not like going through the city and here's these guys hanging out around the bar and saying, yeah, and they just mock him. No, he's going around the city. And if you read the text, they come out to him. They're coming out to find him. Look in verse 23. He went up from thence and unto Bethel. And as he was going up, by the way, there came forth little children out of the city. So they deliberately come out to mock him. It's not like he's in there causing trouble or he walks by them and they just happen to be standing there. And the other thing is, when you talk about little children, I think about somebody that's like four to six or three years old, don't you? So we got this little four-year-old up the way and uh, he came down the other night where he just likes to walk in our house and just help himself to whatever and hides things and all that. So the other day I'm like, well, he starts to head in. I'm like, where are you going? Well, I'm going to go get a snack. Well, okay. And he's, well, anyways, I said, we'll just help you out here or whatever. Anyway, so he didn't like all of that. And he told my son, John, he said, well, you're a stupid dad. Well, I'm saying this is not what we got going on here. A little four-year-old and Elijah just, you know, Elijah just can't handle it. So that kid's hanging outside in a tree at my house, by the way. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. But my point is this is not a little four and six-year-old because they'll do things like that, won't they? They'll do things like that, but that's not what we got on here. So these boys are more than likely between the ages of 10 to 12. They're old enough. So what's happening here, Bethel has been the center of Jeroboam's bull worship for 80 years. And so what are these kids doing? Just like what our kids do, don't they? They reflect the attitude and the religion and the temperament of their parents. That's what's going on here. These people hated God and his prophets, and their kids are just acting out what their parents did. So he, like I said earlier, he had sent several prophets to denounce their worship. So the true God and his true prophets were not real welcome here in Bethel. And you say, well, why did they say, go up, baldy, go up, baldy? So that phrase, go up, it's the same word that was used to talk about when Elijah went up from Elisha. And so word had gotten back. They, these places aren't that far away. And word had gotten back about what had happened to Elijah, about him being taken up. And they're mocking him. They're like, why don't you just do what he did? You're so great. Go on up. Go up, baldy. Go up, baldy. 
They were taunting him. They were making fun of him. It was an insult to call somebody that at the time because lepers shaved their heads. It wasn't nice. They're taunting him. And it's just the same thing that happened to the Lord Jesus Christ with the chief priest when he was on the cross. Same spirit. When they said this to the Lord Jesus, he saved others himself. He cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross. It will believe in him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. It's this antichrist taunting spirit that's coming through these kids. So it's not all just as innocent little, he can't just take a joke type thing. What we need to see back to us again is God is serious about his word. And we need to make sure that we have a respect for God and his word. Because we're getting the other side of God fulfilling his word. So we see in Jericho, he can fulfill it and it can be a blessing. But the other side of that is, and this is where we all need to have a healthy fear of the judgment of God is, his word can also bring judgment, can it? Paul said this, now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ and makes manifest the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So Paul's saying, hey, I preach, I go and preach, and there's a fragrance about me from the spirit and the word of God that I preach. And he's saying to some people it's a blessing and to other people it's not. He says to the ones that perish, we are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the others, the saved, the aroma of life leading to life. And he says, who is sufficient for these things? He's saying that word to those that have no respect for it, it's the same word going forth. It's the same spirit. It's the same aroma. But he's saying to some, it's an aroma of life. These words that Paul preaches. But he said to others that reject it, it's an aroma of fragrance of death. The same word, the same God. That's the way it is. So God is merely right here in Bethel. He is merely fulfilling his covenant with Israel. That's all that's happening through these bears. Do you know that? Because here's what God said, Leviticus 26. This is part of the covenant he made with Israel. He said, if you walk contrary unto me and will not hearken unto me, he said, I will bring seven times more plagues upon you according to your sins. He says this, I will also send wild beasts among you which shall rob you of your children and destroy your cattle and make you few in number and your highways shall be desolate. So you think about it. Did Elisha have the power to call bears out of the woods just because he had a bad attitude? No. He's speaking the word of the Lord. That's God's judgment coming on those children right there. God was fulfilling his word. Now we have to understand this. Let me hasten to say this. God's judgment, it says in Isaiah, is his strange work. So he doesn't delight in punishing the wicked, judging the wicked ever. That's never his delight. He warns and he warns. But eventually he is going to punish all who reject him. That's the way it is. So we're in 2 Kings. If you could turn to 2 Chronicles 36. 2 Chronicles 36, verses 14 to 16. He says, Moreover, all the chief of the priest and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which he had hollowed in Jerusalem. 
and the Lord God of their fathers, he sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes, oftentimes, and sending. So he sent warning many times because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. God doesn't want to destroy anybody. But look at verse 16. But it says they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until it says there was no remedy. That's serious. We all need to think when we hear the word, when we read the word, what we know about the word, we cannot despise it. And you, you can be nice about it, but we need to be willing to obey what God has shown us. And he speaks to us many times because at some point judgment comes, doesn't it? I mean, he tells them that. I mean, it's in the book of Revelations, too. He tells the church, you've lost your first love. Nevertheless, he says, repent. Everything will be okay. He says, but if you don't, what does he tell them? I'll remove your candlestick. No more word. That's a form of judgment. It's the way it comes. Proverbs 13, 13 says this. Whoso despises the word shall be destroyed, but he that fears the commandment shall be destroyed rewarded. He that fears the commandment shall be rewarded. So these young men, they had no fear or respect for God and his word. And I'm saying that is becoming the plague of our country. Young people having no respect for their parents, for their teachers. And when you don't have respect for your parents and your teachers, it moves right on up. Policemen, it moves right on up. Government keeps moving right on up to God and his word. That's the way it works. And it's going to usher in judgment on this country. And I'm saying, I don't want to get into this now. God's wrath has already been poured out on this country just because the bombs haven't fell. Read Romans 1 when it says the wrath of God is revealed. In Romans chapter 1, you know what he goes on to talk about? That he gives people up to uncleanness, to homosexuality, to all of these sins. Read Romans chapter 1. There's no bombs falling there. And that's what we have going on in America. Just like these young men in Bethel, judgment fell. And what's the deal? What are their parents? The parents are the ones responsible, aren't they? They didn't teach these kids to respect God or anything else. And we need, us in here, we need to teach our children the fear of the Lord while they're young. While they're young. Listen, Susanna Wesley mother of Charles and John Wesley. And I think this is good. Believe the self-will of a child has to be broken at a young age by the parents. And one of her rules in her plan of education was this. When a child turned a year old, they were taught to fear the rod and cry softly. By which, she said, they escaped abundance of correction which they might otherwise have had. Yeah. So if you wait until your kids are 13 to ins- try to instill a respect for God and his word, it is too late. It's too late. Except by the grace of God. But here's what the Bible teaches, and we're going to teach this sometime. It's not the church's responsibility to train your little kids up in the ways of the Lord, is it? So you started Genesis, and you taught what the Lord said to Abraham. You go all the way through the book of Revelation, and whose responsibility is it to train up children in the ways of the Lord? The parents, primarily the father. That's where it's at. 
If you don't have devotions in your house of any sort at any time in any way, or if you don't talk to your kids, you just let your kids just go on and think what they're getting here is enough. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not a youth group responsibility. It is the parents' responsibility to train up. Anything else is just a bonus. That's just the way it is. Everybody's like they want to be out doing outreach and evangelism. I'm fine with all that. I really am. The more the merrier. Everybody in here, it wouldn't make me mad at all. But what's our primary evangelistic field? Our children. They are. They're our priority. I ran across this. So Gypsy Smith, he was a traveling evangelist back in the day. And he had this evangelistic campaign, and this lady writes him a letter, and she says, you know, I listened to one of your messages, Gypsy, and I got converted. And she says, I believe the Lord wants me to preach the gospel, but the trouble is, she says, I got 12 children to raise. What should I do? <laughs> but here's the letter he wrote in reply. My dear lady, I am happy to hear that you have been saved and feel called to preach. But I am even more delighted to know that God has already provided you with a congregation of 12. (laughs) And it said she got the point. It's a nice way of saying it, isn't it? So let's walk back here. Let's walk back on the journey. So God wants us to fear him, doesn't he? Nothing wrong with that. (laughs) Those things of judgment, Ananias and Sapphira were a good thing. Poor them. But that example put the fear in the church and kept them walking in the holiness of God. So we need to guard against despising the word of the Lord. Because you could say, oh, that won't be me. Oh, I love the Lord. I love his word. Well, David was a pretty godly man, I think you could say. And yet when he wasn't meeting his duties, when he wasn't praying, when he wasn't out doing what kings should do and taking his leisurely up on that roof and looks the wrong way and keeps looking, a man after God's own heart, Trouble came in his life. Chastisement, a form of judgment. Now, he wasn't cast off, was he? But when the prophet Nathan came to him, speaking for the Lord, he says, you despised my words. That had to cut David because he loved God's law. It's all through Psalm 119, but not at that point he didn't. So don't say it couldn't happen to you or it couldn't happen to me. It can happen to anybody. And that's what we need to see. That's where we need to fear God. There's nothing wrong with that. And we also have to see, hey, we got a barren situation. You got a relative that's saying, I feel like God's forsaken me. There's no hope for me. You can tell them, no, wait a minute here. There is hope for you because you are a case that God specializes in. He loves to pour his grace out on someone like you that feels like they're cursed, that their life looks cursed, that their life looks hopeless. It's not. Oh, no, there's a healing water. And he says, let your speech always be seasoned with salt that we may minister grace unto the hearers. And that may be your opportunity, praying for that person filled with the spirit, speaking the word to them to change that situation of death into life. There is no case we can look at in our family, out of our family or anywhere where we can say that is a curse beyond repair. That's what we got with Jericho. God had himself pronounced the curse and reversed it himself. And so the question we're asking is the title of the message to end with, we're back to the Jordan. So we've been to Bethel, the Jericho, and we're going back and they're going to end in Jordan. And the question is, where is the God of Elijah? And we're saying he's right here. He's right here in our midst because he never changes. He can still part your river. 
heal your disease, provide your needs, whatever your circumstances demand. And we're reading the Bible not just to have something to do. This isn't a Bible study. We're reading the Bible so we can know what God, our God, will do for us today. Amen. What He did then, He'll do today. And like I said, the God of the Bronze Age is the God of the Iron Age. The God of Joshua is still parting the waters. It's been 3,000 years since those waters were parted with Elijah. And his power hasn't diminished at all. It's still the same. He's still parting rivers. Where is the God of Elijah? Still on his throne, isn't he? Still looking down on the children of men, seeing whom he can bless. For the eyes of the Lord, it says, run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is completely his. It doesn't say you have to be perfect. You just have to have your heart be completely his. I got a heart, Lord. I want to follow you, obey you. And he says he's looking for people like that, wanting to show himself strong, just like he did for Elisha. He's wanting someone to cry out, where is the God of Elijah? He says he'll tell you I'm right here, right here to help you, right here to deliver you. That's what he's saying. He hasn't gone AWOL. We're going to close with Psalm 74, 12. It says this, For God is my king of old, who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. I like that. God is my king of old. He's, he's been around forever doing what he does. And he works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. That's his nature. That's what he's looking to do. Amen? And so let's just get on our knees more than we are and seek his face. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have answered our question. Where is the God of Elijah, Lord, that you're right here in our midst and you're living inside of us, Lord, and your power is there. And we pray, as Paul did, Father, that you'll open the eyes of our understanding, Lord. Give us a revelation and wisdom that we can see that power that you have toward us, that resurrection power that you want to demonstrate in and through us. And I ask you'll make all that real, Lord. I also ask that you'll put a healthy fear in us, Lord. Healthy fear of us is so that we can have respect towards you and your word. Amen. We don't despise your word, Lord, that we treasure it and act on it. I just ask that you'll do that for all of us here today in Jesus' name. Amen.